uh, by John Collins, again, another a renowned scholar, and really helping us understand in Jewish apocalyptic literature, which I propose you have to understand at some level because that was already ingrained in the mindset of a first century Jew, and that's why we kind of mess things up as 21st century Christians. Um, if we don't go back and, and re, recalibrate our minds to their understanding. Uh, this book here is um, the book of Revelation. This is um, a new international commentary of the New Testament by Robert Mounts. Actually, this book, um, it, he agrees with me more than I thought he would. Uh, he is more actually dispensational, but uh, this is probably one of the uh, most popular writings uh, or from a scholarship perspective of the dispensational camp. So I wanted to be fair and say, hey, this is my book. You can't have it, but you can buy it somewhere. And, um, and so, <laughs> no, you can actually rent it out, but you got to let me know and write it down and bring it back, please, before you move or something. So, yeah, um, so this book, um, but actually he's more progressive, super progressive, because he, he, he agrees in areas that I didn't think dispensationalists did, so it's kind of bizarre like that. But Another good book. Um, backgrounds of early Christianity. It just is good, whether this book or any book, just to understand what's going on in the first century. And the, my favorite book, most influential book, is the book of Revelation, the New International Greek Testament Commentary. Uh, this is the one where I gave many of you the 100 and whatever page notes. It was the notes from this book, okay? Um, now, People get a little nervous when they see the Greek there. Um, what he does in his book, which is really cool, it is super dense, super thorough. Um, it took him um, many years to write it. I don't even know how many years. But the cool thing about it is wherever you have Greek, it is a scholarly book, okay? It is for theologians. However, wherever he has Greek, he wanted people, he wanted lay leaders to read it too. So wherever he has a Greek word, he puts right next to it the English word. And so you can really, so there is a really good flow of read here. It's just... Um, a very hard, this is kind of, again, dense, okay? But it'll revolutionize the way you look at missions, evangelism. Your walk will be revolutionized, in my opinion, if you read it. So um, can we put these on the back so when people come, um, they can just look at them? Thanks, Lee. Thanks, buddy. All right, guys, we're going to jump right in. Um, again, if it's your first time, I mean, you might not know what I'm talking about, but... But uh, what we're doing right now, we're going to start. We're going to start right where we left off. And what I did was, again, uh, a couple weeks ago, I tried to help us understand a rule of interpretation. Hey, like this, all going to the same page. Here are the grammar rules of how people interpret script, uh, literature. And and it, it, I think it was kind of too much. I think to 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 try and to try and found us. And, and, and graft us in a hermeneutic, a rule of interpretation in 30, 40 minutes, I think is unfair for you. And so uh, what, I began, what I did last week, I said, well, how about we just take a few arguments and we just unpack the argument and say, and so we looked at a few arguments and I felt that was a little more helpful for us, even though it didn't give us the whole framework of the book of Revelation and far be it understanding um, eschatology as a whole. We just looked at, a, we looked at a few popular arguments and then I tried to give you um, the uh, inaugurated eschatology um, thought behind it. These notes, again, will be um, online. And if you do want the, the hundred and whatever pages of notes that I have for you, um, please uh, let me know. You've got to sign up for them because I'm not going to just send them to everybody. A few of you guys did, but I think more of you might want it. Just want to um, give you that shout out again. Um, what we're doing right today, so a couple of topics we're going to talk about today, for example, we're going to talk about Israel. Okay, uh, the, the popular belief with Israel, and, and you see this many times, um, and again, I'm not, the last three weeks I would always, or the last yeah, couple weeks, 
I would always define and, and explain what we did the prior weeks. I'm not going to do that today. I'm just going to jump right in for the sake of time. So hope you give me grace there, guys. Um, what we're doing right now, we're talking about eschatology, the study of last things. And in the study of last things, the default thinking in America is that there is a special place uh, for ethnic Israel. Okay? Um, and that is that ethnic Israel, and that's why even everything that kind of beelines around Israel was going on in Israel. Okay? Um, and so people are looking for certain things that happen in Israel um, that's going to really dictate what's going to happen in the world and what's going to happen as far as new creation. Uh, so, for example, um, the, the, the popular belief uh, is that Israel has a certain trajectory. There's a certain place where Israel's going um, as a people of God. And then there's a, there's a separate certain place where we are going as a church of God. We're God's people, but we have these different places, these different stories. And so uh, such things as uh, the rebuilding of the temple, people are really focusing on that. Um, you even notice, even America, I mean, just America, because it's our default thinking, and as you get religion getting caught up in government, if you notice, even our government, we have a real serious focus on Israel. Have you noticed that? Um, and if you talk to people, and I'm not trying to offend anybody, so I'm just letting you know the, 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 the historic argument, um, people uh, really see Israel as like, like these special people, and, and, and in essence, we, even, we can misread texts like familiar texts in the passage in scriptures where the lady is sitting with Jesus and she says, can I have, you know, even, can I have the crumbs off the table? You know, even you'll give the dogs the crumbs off the table, Jesus. And we actually interpret that text in the scriptures as if Jesus is saying, yeah, you're a dog and I'm going to give you the crumbs off the table. Well, I propose to you, that's just weird in essence. That just seems weird to me. I propose when you go back to that text, the lady isn't just saying, hey, I'm a dog, I want the crumbs. She's saying, you would even give crumbs to dogs, I want to sit at the table. And I'm proposing, Jesus is saying, you get it. Because I'm, I'm, so, I'm proposing that the scriptures teach that, that Gentile believers aren't getting crumbs, he sits you at the table. So that's the framework that I'm, that I'm coming from. Um, okay, so, so I'm proposing that that, that ethnic Israel, although has a place in history, although is extremely important for what God, how God uses ethnic group um, to, um, in redemptive history, right, in remaking history, that, that, is, that the point of, of them as an ethnic group wasn't about, it was, it was really about trying to expose and focus in on a remnant, uh, that, the, that the scriptures teach all throughout scriptures that there's, this, there's, these, there's a, a bunch of people, there's a bunch of individuals, and then you always have a remnant. A remnant means a small part, a small part of a group, okay? And that throughout scriptures, he starts with this ethnic group, not because they're special people, not because they have some special, and in fact, if you look at historically, they were actually kind of the bum of the, all the different people groups. He actually picks the, kind of the goofballs, um, which is, I think, really funny. And he picks the, the unlikely people to be the people who bring redemption to the world. And the reason why they bring redemption to the world is because they are, they bring Jesus to the world. Okay? So, so they're very important in the sense of how God used the group historically. But, but in essence, the ethnic group I'm proposing to you doesn't really mean much. Now that's hard language. My point in that is that Jesus' focus and God's, God's focus has always been the spiritual remnant, not the ethnic remnant. Even during the ethnic group, right? So even when you had all of Israel, you always had within Israel a people group of people. But then what God did, he said, you got all these Israelites. And then within those circumcised people, there is a group of people within them that actually love me. 
And that's why he talks about, we're going to look at some text here, that's why he talks about just because you're circumcised doesn't mean you're truly Israel. So let's look at some text here, guys. Um, I always lose this thing. Okay. We're going to flow through this stuff. Now, are you, we're on the same page so far, guys? Okay, so, so as, we, as we do life, I'm proposing that God is saying that we aren't to look at a specific group of people or even a specific place as being, oh my God, this is where God is going to do all his stuff because I'm proposing that a specific people group that God loves is his spirit, to those who are born again of the spirit, who've always been born again of the spirit, and a specific place that God is going to redeem is the whole world. All right. Um... So let me just walk through some text here and I'll explain them in a moment. Okay, guys, we're looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 29-33. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him uh, that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. This Jesus God has raised up, up um, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. David foresaw the resurrection of the Christ, Christ is of the first fruit of David's body according to the flesh. Peter tells us that Christ has been resurrected and exalted to the right hand of God and thus figuratively sits on David's throne. Why? That says nothing about us being spiritual Israel, Eric. Why did you just read all that? Well, what I'm trying, I'm trying to make the point that, and these are, these are mere like the scriptural points, um, and that is throughout the scripture, what Jesus does is he's trying to help the Israelites understand this, this very point that we're making here. And he's making a point here. He's saying, okay, let me think of who do you guys really respect? Who do you guys really, really think, wow, that guy's, okay, I'll, Abraham, okay, David. So what I'll do is I'll take the people where you have your great identity and where you say, man, like, I'm an Israelite looking because I'm part of David's regime. I come from David or I'm part of I'm Abraham's seed. He says, I'll take those people and I'll show you how they relate to me. And so what he does here, what the text is simply saying here is that your King David, the, king, the, the greatest king of Israel that the people would say, right? Guess what? Jesus sits on his throne. Okay, so now the reason why that's important, we're going to see, so if Jesus is, so if David submits to Jesus, right, and Jesus is the focus of everything, then let's continue to read. It says in Ephesians 5, the New Testament speaks of the unity of Christ in the church. Okay, very famous passage we hear all the time. Ephesians 5, Jesus is all, this is this Christianity 101, right? Jesus is seen as the head of the church. He is the focal point of us, right? And so we are one. The reason why he's the head of the church and he's just not like, I'm here and you're my church. Why? Is because, and the reason why he talks about that whenever you're talking about marriage is because he's trying to show you, he's trying to show you on me something. And that is the, the essence of oneness. Just as in marriage you are one with someone, that's how we are one with Christ. That's why, that's why you always have that marriage symbolism there. And that's why I always talk about us in marriage modeling the Trinity. Because just as they are one, we are one. And so my point in that is that, so if Christ is the head of David, if, if God is saying, okay, the very people that you deeply respect and that you exalt, I'm telling you, they serve me. But then God tells us that, hey, I'm Christ, I'm the man, but guess what? You, the church, you are part of me, we are one. Then how in the world do we have two separate trajectories? Or if we do, 
then, this, then I mean the church must be above Israel because we're one with Christ. But I propose that we're not above Israel. We're not below Israel. We're one. Um, continue on. Romans 2.29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. If you continue to read this passage here, he starts by saying circumcision means nothing if it's outwardly. Basically, if you've been circumcised, circumcision was the mark of that, hey, you are an Israelite, you're an ethnic Jew. He's like, if you've been circumcised outwardly, that means absolutely nothing. This is Jesus, I mean, this is uh, Paul having this discussion and sharing this to, to wake these guys up. Get off your ethnicity and for us to go, hey guys, you guys got this wrong. Like, like quit your focus, quit your, 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 your Israel worship. Like, respect them for how, respect Israelites for how God used them to bring in Jesus and respect the history, the redemptive history that we are grafted into. We're not to disrespect that, but it's not a separate history from us. What God does is he grafts us into that history where we can tell their story in the spirit. And so he says, no, it's, he says, no, don't you get it? He says, not, but circumcision is that of the heart. What I want, and you go back, and this is just uh, from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, th- these are just texts that they talk about. He's like, I want, I want you to, to take the flesh off your heart, not off your private parts. I want your heart to be circumcised. I want, I want to have you. And so his point there is circumcision is, is, is that of the heart in the spirit. It's not of the letter. That kind of praise comes from the Lord. Abraham, who's the father of us all, that's him talking to everybody. I'm just, I'm just giving you uh, text here, just, and you can read these texts. I put the dot, dot, dot to say I'm not going to prove text. I want you to read these texts, study, call my bluff, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Why does he say that? Is he just talking about just Gentiles? No, his point, he's trying to make a point here, that even then, those who are of faith were sons of Abraham, not individuals who were born of the flesh. And that's why, that's why Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, he's like, no, 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 no. It's not about obstetrics. It's not about you being born as a human. He's like, this is a species issue. He's like, see, species have species. You know, I always say this to you. You know, you heard me say this over and over again. Like, dolphins don't have rabbits, right? They're different types, different species, right? A kangaroo is not going to have a lady, right? It's not going to happen, Right? Why? What's Jesus' point there in the text? His point is that, is that humans can't birth spirit because they're of a different species. Spirit has to birth spirit. And that's why Jesus has to birth us, birth us again. He has to birth us. That's why it has to be a rebirth. Because he needs somebody, we need to be born spiritually. So he's like, it doesn't matter if, some, if you have a bunch of people. It doesn't matter about human birth. It's about spiritual birth. He continues on, family, look at this. Um, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. I want you to look at Galatians, huge text there. Um, he says in Hebrews um, 10, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12, uh, third one down. Uh, but you have come for, uh, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. This is discussion as he's talking to this, the, the people, the professing Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh. Uh, go down just for the sake of uh, 
Philippians 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Colossians 2.11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcised made without hands. Why do you think he's using, here, think about it. I mean, this, this really makes sense, right? Why would he always use Jewish terminology to discuss Gentiles' ethnicity? Why? Why do you think he would always use Jewish terminology to always discuss how he defines you and me as his people? Because he's trying to show us that we're grafted into a new history. We're grafted into their history. He's saying, this is you now. So I'm using circumcision language and I'm talking about you being a priest and you reigning. I mean, can you imagine if I'm a Jew and I'm like, man, these are my people and, and you got you Gentiles, y'all all right, and God has born you again, but hey, we still the stuff. And then God starts using terminology that's only, it's only about, it's exclusively for the Israelites. Priest. Why are you going to call him a priest? I ain't even a priest, Jesus. That's what the Israelites would say. How you call, why? Because he's trying to get in our minds that that's right. The people of God are priests. I'm going to use the very stuff where you find your identity, and I'm going to tell you all God's people have that. And the beauty of that is there's no elitism. No one's walking around. Look at what I can do. Look what I get. Look what you get. No, no. Everybody is God's people, and everybody are co-heirs in Christ. Continues on. Um, Ephesians 2.11, I'm going to, uh, I'll read it. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. This is our story now. Uh, continues on out is Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I mean, really, you see what I'm saying? Like, this is, this is this thematic throughout Scripture, this sense of I'm trying to redefine you so you understand you're at the table. So, so this, maybe some of you, what I'm realizing is some of you probably never heard this. And you're going, well, I always thought I was at the table. Well, cool. Don't let no one tell you different. Okay? You know that, no, there's no, you're not a second-rate Christian because you're not a first-century believer. You understand? We all have the co-heirship. We all reign with Christ. And that's what the scripture is talking about in Romans 11, I dare tell you, is that we have all been grafted into the story. Um, he's, I love this. Luke, Luke 1. I had a, a friend of mine was talking about, well, because some of the arguments can even say, uh, well, you think about it, Jacob was called Israel, right? So Jacob was renamed as Israel. And so maybe the whole focal point is that, you know, we're grafted into Abraham's story, but we're not grafted into Israel's story. Right? That, that's, that's an argument. Well, look at Luke. Look at Luke. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David, and he will be king over the house of Jacob for the ages, and his kingdom there will be no end. So I'm proposing to you that that's just a proof text there. Like, my, I don't even think I should have to go there. But I love that the scriptures even show, like, no, king is, Jesus is king over the house of Jacob. Like, he's ruling things. And according to where our place is, so let's forget about the theology. Let's just understand, like, our Christology. Like, what, what happens to us when we become believers? I mean, we become heirs with Christ. We are one with Christ. And so there's no second-rate peace there.
That's what we receive when we are born again. All right, any questions about, about that one real quick? Well, let me just keep rolling. Um, obviously, you see there's a lot of text here. I can keep going. I just wanted to let you know. Um, all right, there's more, and I, I just I stopped. There's a ton of more text. It's, it's just a theme. The reason why I found it because it's a theme in Scripture. The theme is that there's been this beautiful narrative of God taking an unlikely goofball, crazy, vagabond group of people, making them his people, and then all throughout history, what he does, and when you read the Old Testament, is that he has these people, and then some people in there serve him, and many don't. And then what happens many times is Jesus says, I'm going to kill, you know, God, I'm going to kill everybody, and then he, he saves, as it were, a remnant. And then what he does is he produces, and he produces a bunch of people again, and there's still a remnant within that group of people. And then, you know, when you read stories, um, oh, man, I'm trying to give you, give you so Esther. The whole, whole, the whole point of Esther is God's faithfulness, right? The whole point is, is that if God hadn't done what he had done, if he hadn't risen up those people, all of Israel would have been killed, and God would have been a liar. But what he does, when all of Israel is about to be killed, he raises up this woman, and then he protects a group. A remnant. And he continues to do that. And I propose what happens when Jesus comes on the scene, when he begins to, to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, and then you know, thousands of people leave him, and then 12 stay. That's a retelling of what he does. And that is, many people will leave, but there'll be a remnant. He'll always have a few people that will worship him, that will truly say, I love the Lord. And then what he does is he grabs those 12 and then all these people are around and then he has, in the midst of all the people loving the bread that he's bringing all that stuff, he has a remnant. And then you have him dying and resurrecting from the dead. Right? And you continue, I mean, it's this story over and over again of there will be a few people who will love him as far be it now the church. We have churches, thousands of people in buildings and we're all worshiping the Lord and you got passion conferences and everyone's ha ha. Right? And that's really cute and cool. And I'm telling you right now, all those people aren't believers. Within a group of stadiums, listen to Chris Tomlin, there's a remnant of people who actually have said, I have given you my life. You are my king. You reign in me. I will submit to you. And he'll do that until the end of time. And that those who truly understand, as me and my boy talk about godly sorrow, and understand repentance, and understand that Christ is king, and he reigns in me, and so my life is no longer my own, that will be the remnant. And then what will happen at the end of time is that the church will be persecuted almost into extinction, and then we'll have our remnant, and then God will bring home validation and new creation. That's the story. I have no clue what I did with that thing. Thank you, brother. All right. Being beheaded. Okay, so in Revelation 20, um, you have, you have, a, you have a, um, uh, let me just read it. Is it up there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, is that the remaining down? Let me read Revelation 20, verse 4 for you guys real quick. And it's a... Uh, just to make sense of what I'm going to share right now. We're changing topics. We're from Israel now. I'm hoping we all understand we are spiritual Israel. Romans 9, Romans 11 will be some great passages as well to look at. Uh, Revelation, Revelation 20, verse 4, um, this is a text that people really struggle with, and rightfully so. It's a hard text. It says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. 
They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Um, individuals see this as specific martyrs who are going to give themselves over, who are going to die, um, and are going to reign with Christ because they were faithful to the Lord and are going to reign during the thousand-year reign when he reigns on earth. Um, I propose that, that that's not the case. I propose that being beheaded is the same language that you're going to also see. It's going to be a different word, but it's the sense of, of, of dying, dying and letting Christ live in you. Basically, I'm proposing that that text is talking about believers. And, that, and, that, and, I, and I think that's actually really important because this point is that you can't, if, you don't, if you're a Christian, you die. I'm proposing that's his point. That, Chris, that, that, his, that he's not saying, and I, I don't make fun, like, like I, I don't think the issue is like, okay, well, if I, if I don't die a martyr's death during a certain time, I don't get this special reward, this special carrot. Guys, I'm just saying that just comes off kind of weird. Not less than if I, I, don't, I don't think theologically it stands up. There's something theologically important he's trying to help us understand is that believers, we, we live a martyrdom life. We live a life of sacrificial service and death, which retells the story of, God, of God's murder, right? He was murdered. We get murdered. He rises. So do we. So being beheaded, Revelation 6, 9, chapter 8, 14, 19, I'm proposing those are all the different examples of him talking this dead Christian language that, that those of you who are, as we walk with the Lord, what God is saying is that we, we, we are becoming the beheaded ones, as it were. We are those who actually die to live. Is that new language? Of course not. It's all throughout the scriptures, right? Laced throughout the scriptures. Look at this, Mark 8. For whoever wants to save his life, loses it. <laughs> right? I can go through that one. I mean... I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me as eternal life will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And he continues on this theme over and over, you know, over John 3, 11, 12, 6, and 1 Peter. Um, chapter, you know, Romans 6, very famous passage, Romans chapter 6. The whole concept in the issue of sin, guys, the whole concept is you're dead to it. And now you're alive in Christ. And I'm proposing that the thousand-year reign is now. You guys know, you know, I've been screaming that for weeks. And why? Because you died to sin, now you live and you reign with Christ as he reigns now. And that's why we don't have to be held captive to pornography. And we don't have to be held captive to sin because God is saying Satan wants to fool you and me and thinking, no, Jesus doesn't reign, you don't reign, you're still in your stuff, and now by faith you have to believe, no, Jesus reigns, I reign, and stuff doesn't have any hold on me because I'm a part of the resurrection. Just as Jesus has been resurrected, I have been resurrected too, and I live a resurrected life in the power of Christ. That's the Christian story. But Satan's job is to make you and me forget that and to, remind, to, to try to remind us about our old dead life when we, when we were still alive in sin and doing our thing. He says, no, 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 no. I've been crucified. I'm and that's why we talk about killing sin, lest it be killing you. So I, I, I propose there's huge theological parallels and theological importance to understanding your state. Romans 7 
2 Corinthians, Colossians 2, Colossians 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Beautiful text. I'm proposing, that's, I, I would tell you, if, if I was, and I, I just looked at that one, I'm telling you, there's so many, te- the scriptures are awesome. If we were to take a scripture verse and say, how do you interpret this Revelation piece, this Revelation 20? Man, what a good text there. Because that's, that's in essence what, what God is saying. See, he's saying there's a reality that's, that's real as all we all get out, but it's hidden. And no one sees it. But the believer, there's a reality hidden, that reality, that you died and now your new life is hidden in Christ. It's hidden in Jesus. And we live that life. We live that resurrected life, that powerful reigning life in Christ, even though the whole world thinks we're, we're dead and we're stupid and we're weird. And then he reminds us, Satan wants to remind you, like, no, see, everybody's telling you you're crazy. Really? You quit your job to be in ministry? Really, you're trying to just serve the Lord faithfully as a, as a lawyer? Really, you, tr- you want to give your money away? Like, really? That's kind of weird. Dog eat dog world. Don't you get it? Jesus is not reigning. This is Satan's world. Look at all the evil and all the pain. Look at the pain in your life. Why are you sacrificing for this dead Savior guy? You don't reign. And Satan is trying to fool us. But see, the scriptures, the revelation wants to shake us out of that, re, out of that, just that, that sickness and say, no, 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 understand. Don't ride on the animal of the beast, this whole world system. But no, stay focused. Understand you do reign. You have been beheaded. You've been murdered. But now you're alive with me. That's the, that's the call of the Christian life. That's worth dying for. That's worth living for. That's what we do. And at one day we'll do that our, our whole of our days and we'll have tears of stream, tears falling down our face and we'll go to jail for 60 days for Christ. And he would go, man, it was a work. Why didn't I just run like everybody else? Why didn't I just have my voice stay dry 10 and 2 and just be nice and make sure I don't get in trouble again? Why well, no? Because I'm going to have integrity because I reign with Christ. There's a new creation and I'm part of it. And one day, even if no one in the world sees it, even if I get done the rest of my life, one day Jesus will say, well and done, good and faithful servant. And that's worth it all. That's what he wants us to get, family. He wants us to hold on to the reality of faith. See, that's a faith walk. That's a, it takes faith. Did you understand? So he says, you, you die, your new life is hidden. It's hidden. People can't see it. They think you're stupid. They think you're weird sacrificing for the king, loving each other, being an interracial ministry and, and caring for the poor and the wealthy and everyone's wrestling together. And your kids, you live in this neighborhood and you don't have to live here. And you're thinking, man, my kids will never experience nice, beautiful parks where everyone's okay and nice. And you're thinking, well, is it worth it? Yes. It's worth it for the king. Because we live, there's something bigger than all that stuff. There's something bigger. If we die with him, we will also live with him. All right. Um, so you have Israel proposing, guys. We are true spiritual Israel. We're no more important than Israel ethnic Israel, we're no less important than ethnic Israel. We are brothers and sisters. And we grab hold and we march with God's story together. And we are marching together in new creation. And you know, I love the beautiful story. I love when Jesus says, is that Matthew 20? When he says, he gives, a, he gives an example, right? He says, I, well, I'm mad. Well, how in the world, if I come to work at 5 in the morning, work for you all day, and a dude come, and, and, and payday is that day, and, and, and you're off work at 6 o'clock, 
and dude come at 5.30 p.m. and works for 30 minutes, you telling me he gets the same dough that I get? He gets paid the same? Right? Is that how, I mean, that's Eric's translation, but that's the tenor of the story. Right? And Jesus says, wait, why are you hating? Are you mad because I'm good? That's what he said. Now that's, now, that's the translation there. Are you mad because I'm good? That's what the father says. Is that your issue? Because I told you when you started working for me, I was going to give you $15 and you was happy. So let's be clear. You're not mad because I played you because I didn't. You're mad because I'm blessing other people. That's why you're mad. You still got your $15. You're just mad I'm giving somebody else $15. That's a hater. See, God is saying, I don't care if you're coming at 530 or 8 in the morning, I'm blessing people. And we need to be excited about people being blessed. And that's why we hold arms with Israel and we say, hey, I came in at 545. Praise the Lord with me, brother. I'm with you. And we all getting paid. Right? Amen. So, so God is saying, we, we march together. And he's saying, but let's understand something. It costs you something. It costs me and you something, family. It costs us our very lives. And I'm proposing, that's why this whole context of the beheaded ones, those who are martyred in Revelation 6 and 9, are the same in Revelation 24. And they're saying, Lord, hey, man, when are you going to let the world know that I ain't go out like a sucker? And he says, hey, I got you. One day. But here, the only reason you're all here right now, I'm proposing, and we're all here, is because God says, but there's more people that need to know me. See, I, I haven't had a chance to go here, but there's great theological evidence that the reason why God didn't bring new creation right after the fall is because he wanted people to know him. He said, you know what? I'm waiting because there's some things I'm doing. I'm trying. See, and that's why the whole two witnesses um, in Revelation um, uh, 12 and 13, I mean, sorry, I'm sorry, in, in chapter 12, you had the two witnesses. And it goes on from 12 to 13 and 14, that whole context there, this whole two witnesses, the church being the lampstands, the church being the, the temple, all of that's trying to say something to us. We're the two witnesses, I'm proposing. That's not two people who are going to have like a sword in their mouth stabbing people. That's, that, that, is, that is symbolic for the, the, the witness of the church, the people of God. Right? And so we, the reason why we're here is God is saying, I'm not going to protect you physically. You're going to get beat up physically. I'm going to protect you spiritually. You will know me. You will endure to the end. And the reason why you endure to the end, because I want people to have a good witness. The main reason we are created is to be on mission. And that's why I still don't get it when people get all antsy and want to get crazy when we're trying to be on mission here. It's the re- if you are a Christian, it's the reason why you were created. It's the reason why you were recreated. Rapture. Okay, so we got those two down. Um, man, I ain't going to have no time for this one. All right, rapture. Real quick, rapture. Um, one day we'll be walking around. All of a sudden, um, you guys will still be here. I'll be gone because I'm a Christian. And... Um, um, so, so there's a context of like, you know, you, if you, there's a Left Behind movie. Again, I'm getting older and I'm realizing that when I got people in the audience going, what's Left Behind? Couldn't believe that when people said that. But that's where he shows your age thing. So there's a movie that discusses this. Basically, the context is that the people of God would not endure, we would not be a part of the tribulation. God will take us away from the world to not endure the tribulation. Guys, I think there's huge consequences to believing that. Are you kidding me? I'm not proposing, not only do you, you and me experience tribulation, like, 
it's like it's like the mode of operation for Jesus for the believer. Like persecution is like on our W-2 form. Like it's not even like, oh, and it might be a little persecution. Like it's what we do. Like that, I'm, I'm, Jesus is like, oh, yeah, you're going to know me and you'll experience persecution. He could have said a million other things. And he tells you that. Really, Jesus, you can tell me about the heavenly gates and the pearls and stuff. The, the next thing, you know, you will know, but you experience persecution. Persecution and, and like us being on trial and being in the world condemning us is part and parcel of the sanctification of our faith. So, 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 but, 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 but this, this mode of thinking is that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll miss persecute, we'll miss tribulation. I won't say persecution, that's not fair. We'll miss tribulation period, this intense time of persecution. Um, and uh, we'll go off um, in the sunset kind of thing. And it's come from um, the main text here. I, I wrote these things down just to, um, I, I wrote up here, just teaching the service that right, out, right before a great time of suffering, hardship takes place on the earth, Christians will be suddenly and secretly raptured or taken by Jesus. And this is what he's saying, secretly raptured. This is the, the, the context, Lev, uh, levitating up into the air uh, to be with Christ. Okay. Uh, then after the tribulation, Jesus and the Christians will return to earth. He will set up his earthly millennial kingdom. They'll reign with the Lord. Okay. I'm sorry, guys. So I don't have time to read this text here. This is where the text comes from. The main, pe- the main piece is this in Matthew 24, uh, the sense of, you know, caught up in clouds. Um, I, I would propose to you for the sake of time, guys. Oh, this is a big one, too. Um, if you read this text here, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord uh, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Uh, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Uh, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in a cloud to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. And you look at this reading, and naked reading, you go, what's the problem, Eric? makes really good sense to me. I'm being in a cloud with Jesus. Um, my only my, my issue though is you 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 are reading this from the mindset of 20th and 21st century Christian mindset, and that's what's just that's what's killing us um, now. Uh, well, for the argument, it was in the 1900s and late 1800s, so we can even go there just for the sake of a discussion. The piece here, when you piece this with some other things together, I totally see how you get the, the doctrine. So I don't I don't think it's like crazy in that sense. But it misses um, understanding what the thoughts were in apocalyptic writing. Again, um, I, I first would just say practically, it doesn't seem secret. You got trumpets, you got the voice crying, everybody looking. I mean, so I don't get I don't get how more plainly that text is not like, hey, you know, you know, Jesus like, do, 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 you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know, like, so. I don't think the secret rapture fits with this passage at the least, just pragmatically. Um, but what does the passage mean? I'll just throw this out here, and then we're going um, to worship the Lord together. Okay, guys, thanks for your time. Um, so in the first century, this coming piece had two meanings. First, look at this, the mysterious presence of a God or divinity uh, when the power of this God was revealed in healing. So, so it was an issue of God's presence. The point was presence. Uh, the second piece, don't miss this. When a person of high rank makes a visit to a subject state, particularly when a king or emperor visits a colony or province. So I'm proposing that his point, which first century Jews would totally be, oh, I get it. Like when he talks this cloud piece, even when you see the palm branches in, in, in Matthew, it's the sense of they're, they're coming, they're meeting him in the clouds, not to go float with him, but to welcome him to his domain. That is the whole world. 
almost like what his whole point, the point there is to show the kingship of Jesus, not to, not to retell you how things are going to actually be. His point is that, hey, I'm the king, and when I come back, y'all going to be my people. We're going to do this thing together. That's his point. And so he paints this, uh, this celestial, uh, majestic kingship picture of like when you had trumpets sounding and a voice crying out. And what you had is you had, the, you had the king's servants going to the king and then ushering him into the town in which they had taken over. That's his point, is that you will usher me back into new creation. Um, that makes sense, and you can wrestle with it. Just, I hope you understand the argument. So I'm saying this text is that he's saying the exact same thing in First Corinthians 15. I'm going to read that text, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, and Philippians chapter three. Um, all this stuff he says here. Yeah, I read this passage on your own. They gonna kill me. All right, here's. I got to close. I really want to read these two passages because it's really good. Um, so, okay. can I read it, guys? Thing. All right. Okay. So look. So he says. So, so he says these things are happening in his own order, right? He says Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. After those, uh, those who are Christ at his coming. Talking about what's going to happen. Then the, uh, comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Um, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so I'm proposing he's saying exactly that, that this is going to happen is the sense of like God's reign and rule is going to come. And then we will come with him. The last enemy be in death. Verse 27, for he has put all things in subject under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted. Um, he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Um, another passage here I want you to look at. I'm sorry. I'm going to continue on. Behold, just continue in 1 Corinthians. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Okay, the same sense of what's going to happen to the dead folks again uh, in a moment, in a twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet. See, the, uh, when, you, when you put these, I can't do it because of the, uh, the screen, you put these scriptures together, you start to see some same imagery. Um, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised and perishable, and we will be changed. What are you talking about there? Right? He's talking about recreation. He's talking about us getting our resurrected bodies like the king. Okay? Uh, for this perishable must be uh, must put on, uh, must put on the imperishable. Us must put on the imperishable, um, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have uh, put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, uh, then will come about the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. So this is the final. This is like the final reign. This is like this is like when new creation all happens. So very weird that new creation will happen, but we're off here somewhere. This this does not seem like. Um, a, a, a partial rain where we come down for a thousand years rain and kick it. This seems like we're resurrected, we're ready to go. First uh, Philippians 3, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even, um, that he has even to subject all things to himself. Point being there, people always think about their citizenship being in heaven. I talked about this a few years ago. Like, we think, oh, my citizenship is in heaven. That means I need to go to heaven to be, my, to be a citizenship, to be a citizen. And his point there isn't like you're going somewhere to get it. It's like um, if, I, always, I use this analogy, like if, if I come home and Sarah says, hey, your dinner's in the oven, like I don't go climb in the oven to eat it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like his point is like your citizenship is in heaven and, he's, and, that, and that citizenship will be brought down in the new creation. That we will, that, that, that's where the, the stuff prepared for us is in the realm that we don't see. 
which I propose is a sphere. It's not like, but it's in a realm that we don't see. And then that realm will one day be open for us all to see. And so that citizenship that we have placed and waiting for us in heaven will be here for us all to experience in the new creation. So these are all different ways. When you take these texts together of different ways of talking about this reality of new creation, what God is going to do to us and what he's going to do to his whole creation. Um, point being a few things, and that is, we need to worship, that we need to worship our king, and that we reign with him, he reigns, that we have reigned because we have died and we live now with Christ. That's the reality of the Christian life, and that we're not second place believers because we're 21st, 21st century Christians, right? That, that we, have, we, have, we are sitting at the table and we're partnering uh, with the people of God, those who are born of the Spirit, those who are circumcised of the Spirit, to bring in rule and reign of Christ. That's our mode of operation. And that's why we do everything we do here at MacAff. That's why we're serious about discipleship. That's why we're serious about people being pouring into each other, not being isolated, caring for each other, training, and us training others. That's why we're trying to give a mic in a community where people can't speak for themselves necessarily, where we can neighbor and not just do something to people, where we can say we're going to come to an area and we're going to just be gospel light. And we're not trying to grow a church or any of this crazy crap. What we're trying to do is we're trying to be consistent in our prophetic witness as two witnesses proclaiming to the world that Christ is king and you can experience his love and rule. And so that's why we're very serious about doing outreach. That's why we're very serious about having the five um, environments of sharing your faith. When we talk about neighboring and our momentum outreaches and our, and our corner stores and our one-on-one times. And that's why we're very serious about community. Because God has made us one so that we might retell the story of the cross and resurrection. We might retell the story of the Trinity. We might experience what the new creation has given us already in the power of the Holy Spirit and in his covenant community. And that's why we're experiencing such a crazy fight. That's why you guys are the most amazing people. I love our body, but that's why we're fighting like crazy, because if all that's true, guess what? Satan will persecute you and me, and he will continue to remind you and me that, no, I don't think Jesus is reigning, and because he's not reigning, you're not reigning. So what are you doing? Why are you wasting your life? Get yours. Consume. Don't give. So now the question is, which kingdom will we believe? It's worship. Guys, I want us to worship our king. Let's tithe and offer right now. Uh, what we're going to do, I want to remind you guys, if you're new here, keep your wallets to your side. Put your purses down. You're our guest. We're so glad you've come. I hope you're encouraged by the truth of God's word. Uh, his word is true. Every man's a liar. And... Um, we ask that you would just enjoy this time. If you're a Mac Ab, I want you to understand this. Uh, we get it. This is a time of worship. Um, if you get that, even as a newcomer, worship your king and give to your king. But we don't want you giving out of compulsion. This is not about us getting your money or anything like that. This is about worship. This is another aspect of worship. We're going to sing to the Lord, okay? Um, then what we're going to do is we're going to pray. We're going to take um, communion downstairs. So please just go downstairs. I thank you guys for giving me a little more time. I hope we have... I hope, our, I hope our view of God has been risen a little bit to understand how big he is and how small we are and the beauty that we get to partake in his plan and that we would do that together as a community of faith. Um, let me pray for us, and then we're going to have the guys come down here. We're going to have the baskets just pass them all the way through, please.